0: The government will hack you, legally. It might sound like a dystopian sci-fi novel or a TV show, but all around the world, governments are breaking into networks and personal devices for intelligence gathering and surveillance.
1: Government-sponsored hacking operations are useful, the proponents argue against terrorists and criminals, but they also raise some really tricky questions about human rights. What happens when states hack targets like journalists, Sarah, activists, or just regular civilians? Welcome to the Cybersecurity Podcast, where we go beyond the headlines to interview some of the key leaders and thinkers in the field. I'm Peter Singer, Stratus and Senior Fellow at New America.
0: And I'm Sarah Sorcher, Deputy Editor of Passcode, the Christian Science Monitor's section on security and privacy in the digital age. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Amy Stepanovich. She's a lawyer specializing in cybersecurity and privacy law at Digital Rights Group Access Now. She also has a paper coming out this month looking at government hacking from a human rights perspective.
1: But first... One of the things that's of great concern right now and hitting the news with stories of hacks of everything from election campaigns to uh, state election offices is the idea of an October surprise. And by that, we don't mean Cybersecurity Awareness Month, but the fact that cybersecurity may enter into an election. And that is something that I've been seeing of concern in the travels I've been doing around the country, everywhere from West Coast to Midwest to here in DC, is what's the combination of cybersecurity and democracy and what are some of the concerns out there we have when we're talking about elections themselves?
0: Yeah, it's a huge, huge issue this cycle. I mean, we've seen the DNC breach, which, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners will remember, uh, exposed a lot of really embarrassing emails from uh, some of our political leaders and resulted in resignations. And you have attacks on Mr. Trump's website, and you have um, all sorts of different, different kinds of hacks this cycle. And it's and even on some of the uh, state election systems, we've seen in some of recent weeks, we've we've had the FBI increase their alerts for. Um, Um, state election agencies to stay on top of this threat even more.
1: One of the things that you're getting out there that I found interesting is um, the challenge for people in understanding the difference of the why. Why would people go after these, these entities? And there's there's basically one of the answers to it is there's sort of a difference between the election campaigns themselves and the sort of information that they hold, which would be of value. So you think about an election campaign, you know, it has uh, everything from information about policy stances that that candidate might take if it wins. You You've got the idea of opposition research uh, secrets. Um, You might have secrets inside the campaign. Uh, You also, oh, by the way, they're holders of massive amounts of information on their donors, everything from their addresses to their credit cards. But that's very different than when you're talking about, like, the hacks we've seen, say, in Arizona, where you're going after the election system itself. In that case, it's not so much about stealing the secrets, it's about the potential of um, causing some kind of disruption on a election day. The idea of um, maybe you can either manipulate the election or just simply by DDoSing it. Elections, you know, everything happens on that day, so it's very hard to recover. And that's one of the things I've found fascinating is how we are combining these two very different but related target sets together.
0: Yeah, in some ways, if you it depends on the hacker's intent. If you're a hacker that just wants people's credit card information, you could also similarly target campaigns and get people's credit card information and addresses and other personal information in the same way that you could a hospital or a bank or Target or anything like that. But I think what's so interesting in the political system is just that you have this opportunity where if you really want to influence politics more so than just getting on Twitter and saying your piece or on Facebook and you know, talking to your audience, you can really, if you know what you're doing, you can really do some, make some big changes on the public psyche. And I just got back from DEF CON a couple of weeks ago where I talked to Chris Rock. He's an Australian uh, security researcher there, and he shadowed a mercenary, an actual real-world mercenary, to find out his tactics on how to overthrow a, a government. cyber
1: mercenary, let's be clear, because, you know, I used to do a book on what they would say, real mercenary. No,
0: he was a real, he shadowed a real-life mercenary. He found him on Twitter. He was in jail for plotting against Against governments, and he tried to align his tactics with what this guy was doing in the real world. He made a really interesting point about the US election in that, you know, if you were really trying to create chaos, you would wait until 12 days before the election and release something. It doesn't have to be real, even, it can be fake. And if you've already earned the credibility like these suspected hackers have by releasing real emails, you can actually convince people, you know, not to be totally conspiratorial, but you could probably convince people enough to make a difference in in their votes. So that is really a terrifying thought.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, it's actually, it's a a parallel when you think about Russian um, approaches to information warfare, which is what we're talking about. We've seen similar types of moves against um, election systems or campaigns everywhere from Russian opposition to Ukraine, to the Baltics, to Hungary. And one of the ideas here is that you uh, bury the secret in a sea of truths. And we've actually seen examples of this when they've done data dumps uh, and there was a slip-up where essentially two different Russian outlets did a massive data dump and one had manipulated information in it and the other didn't so you could do this compare and contrast mm-hmm. what I'm interested in is um, when you're saying you know there's uh, parallels in terms of uh, you know a campaign and say a, a department store or bank there there's definitely strong parallels but there's also subtle differences and you know so one for example is the idea that campaigns by their very nature are temporary so they're very um, loosely structured organizations. They they are in startup mode from start to finish, and they they have a definite endpoint, um, and that's different than a company that sort of has the vision of we're going to be in this for the long term. Um, they also have a, a mix of staffing that makes them particularly vulnerable in cybersecurity. They have this mix of full time campaign workers, but also volunteers that you're letting in behind the veil, and so that opens new kind of vulnerabilities. I think, what, you know, the other part of it is they have quite limited resources where there is a strong parallel is the idea that they are um, they look at cybersecurity spending as a tax on the organization. Organization, You know, every dollar that you spend on cybersecurity is not a dollar on get out the vote, which is the very reason for the campaign. Right. And so that's why I think we've seen these examples already in the past, but we're definitely going to see them continue in the future. Whether it happens in the November election or not, I think it's just become, you know, part of the system here.
0: And just like hackers you know, it depends what they're going to do, depends on their motivations. It also depends on incentives for businesses. If you're a business and you know you're going to be around for a long time and your point is to make profit and protect your customers, you have clear incentives, especially now, to protect your own cybersecurity. But if you're a campaign, it might not even be something that you've thought about until this election cycle and you see what's happening to the DNC. And there are a lot of security people who say that campaigns have probably been hacked already. And, you know, you saw that in 2008. There were there was some talk about this, but it has never until this point been to the scale where it's been so publicly embarrassing and so publicly damaging for people. And it's it's hitting hard in a way that I think the OPM breach also within the government hit hard and was kind of a wake-up call for people. And um, we just ran a really interesting piece on Pasco an opinion piece by Bob Hansman, who's the director of security technologies at Forcepoint in Austin. And He's saying that political campaigns need to have chief information security officers just like companies do, um, that it's not good enough to create, you know, advisory boards to try to help people mitigate, you know, help the victims of the breach on the DNC, you know, mitigate that. But, um, you know, the CISOs could really help protect voter voter data, but also preserve this kind of confidence in the election system. But, you know, even that is not going to solve everything. So that seems like a very basic first step that I, I wonder if that will even be able to happen pretty quickly. It's
1: an interesting one because um, I agree on the need, you know, more broadly to our democracy writ large. You know, we're going to have to rethink how we do cybersecurity related to democracy itself. The challenge of the CISO idea for every campaign is at what level and where do you find these people? I mean, it's hard enough for businesses to find good CISOs. Um, now you're talking about does every presidential campaign, does every Senate campaign, governor campaign, city council campaign. Um, the other part of this is, as we well know from the private business side, it's not going to be enough. I think there's a, a going to have to be a public sector side of this you know for example do we need to treat elections both the campaigns and the system itself at, akin to critical infrastructure if not, why not? It seems critical to our democracy. Um, do we need a cert elections where you're creating a format for campaigns to actually share information, not on their policies, but on their cybersecurity policies? Because guess what? As you were hitting that, um, many of them are being targeted by the same actors. That's what we mm-hmm. saw in 2008. That's what we saw in 2012. They were going after both Obama and and McCain campaign, and then later yeah. Obama and Romney campaign. You know, the other part of this is: um, do we need to think about this as uh, some kind of public financing side, a lot like we saw with um, matching back in the day related to campaign ads? But I think at the bottom line, you know, the the real key is the same story that you have in cybersecurity overall. We need greater awareness, and that's got to apply to voters as well, because if we're talking about these attempts, not just to steal information, but to manipulate information, that depends on voters being taken in by it.
0: People's perceptions of reality and what they believe is, you know, it's changed so—I think it's become so much more polarized in recent years, and then if you start adding in this layer of data manipulation and active information warfare, I think it that could— be just total grounds for chaos. And I think it's just so interesting to think about this. I mean, do we need an elections CISO? Do we need information sharing between campaigns, you know, that would ordinarily never want to share information to protect them from these kinds of actors? I mean, that's a lot of pressure to basically protect the democratic process in this day and age. And it's going to be really interesting to track the next couple of weeks before the election, and we'll certainly be watching.
1: It also lays out the question of what's going to happen, not just in the coming weeks, But this is going to be with us for the long term. And that's why it's so fascinating, so important. So maybe we're going to have to revisit this at future episodes of the podcast.
0: Sounds like it.
1: Well, thanks. Uh, Now we'll hear from Amy Stepinovich, Policy Manager for Digital Rights at Access Now.
0: And so we've just talked about hacking democracy, but now we'll talk about the ways that the government can hack you and whether some kind of hacks are better or worse from a human rights standpoint and her recommendations for how governments around the world can do better on this front.
1: So thanks for joining us. Before we start in about the project, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came into this work?
0: Sure.
2: So I came to Access Now from an organization called Epic doing privacy work. Um, And have been with this organization for two and a half years and get really excited because we come at issues of technology from a human rights framework, which is really unique. And not only from a human rights framework, but really from a global human rights framework. So we don't really look at necessarily um, the legal framework in the United States or in the European Union or in Latin America, but we try to look at kind of these international frameworks and apply them to new and emerging technology issues and see how they match up.
1: Okay, so you have a new report out entitled, A Human Rights Approach to Government Hacking. So let's break this down. First, for our listeners, why don't you outline uh, what you mean by government hacking? Can you point to a couple like high profile incidents or cases that, that drive this, but really the practice overall?
2: Sure. And it's actually what we found out is it's really hard to define hacking. Um, especially government hacking, when you're looking at um, all sorts of different activities that could be involved. And so we came at it from an angle of, is there any way to categorize the activities that governments involve themselves in in order to bypass security protections? Um, And basically looking at that huge universe further broke it down into three really broad categories based on motivation – Um, And I actually had to learn a lot more about technology than I do in my typical policy job um, and had to kind of come into it from there's not a specific route from point A to point B when you're involved in hacking. It really kind of winds its way through. Um, So we looked at motivation and looked at um, government hacking activities as things that governments would do either to control messaging, to um, commit harmful acts of maybe can, can you
1: give an example of each of these as sure. you're taking through them
2: sure so control messaging would be something like um, a government wants to make sure that a certain group that it disagrees with um, does, is not able to get its messages out and so it floods a message board where that group is really active to um, hide its messages amongst a lot of different positive messages um, that actually reflect what the government wants it to, to say um, and conduct harm um, we're looking at like actual physical world harm, so it could be either um, hacking into a computer and causing it to overheat and ruining the computer itself, or it could be something like what we saw, actually not a government example, but a, a real-life example we saw at um, DEF CON last year where hackers were able to hack into a rifle and cause it to be confused about where it was aiming, and so it actually aimed at a target that wasn't the target that it thought it was aiming at. Um, And committed some harm that way. So there are a lot of different things within that category. Um, And then the third category was general like intelligence or surveillance. So getting to communications or location or
0: um, getting some sort of information about a person. So, what countries are that you know about are carrying out different kind these different kinds of government hacking? I mean, what's the role of the u s or u s allies like the u k But then there also sounds like there might be some other things going on with the control messaging applications of hacking in other countries, Sure.
2: So we know the most about the u s. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that the nsa and and really the FBI have been hacking for couple decades. Um, We have some vague information about what those activities involve, and we're starting to get more information. Reports are starting to come out. You're seeing court documents um, about what actually is going on there. And so you have it in that foreign intelligence world, where the NSA has an entire unit um, set aside to hack into devices. And Mm -hmm. then at the FBI, um, things like the playpen case, which is happening right now, this is a case where the FBI um, put a piece of malware on a website and was able to track it as people visited that website, it was downloaded onto their individual computers. Um, so these are the type of activities in the US. Um, in the UK, it we also know that they're um, engaged in hacking operations. This was actually only really officially confirmed recently. Um, in 2015, they published a code of practice on what they call equipment interference, which is a euphemism for government hacking. Um, And they are trying to write this into their new law that they're passing at the moment that they're debating called the Investigatory Powers Bill and just specifically give themselves authorization to hack. Um, Other countries around the world are also engaging in it. Um, One very common practice is actually instead of hacking, um, the government conducting the hacking operations themselves um, to contract out with third party companies Mm -hmm. um, who will get – engage in those activities on behalf of the government. And so we saw this with things like hacking team um, and the contracts that they have with governments, um, especially governments like Italy and Turkey and other governments around the world and how they were actually conducting hacking operations through this third party. So this is not isolated to any specific country. It's actually fairly broad activity, but not really spoken of much.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that different countries had different motivations for government hacking. Just wondering, do you see in your research any kind of government hacks that are more acceptable than others or some that are just, you know, totally shouldn't happen ever? Sure.
2: So we actually, what we came up with is in those three categories and message control, doing harm and surveillance, that those first two really are just inherently inconsistent with human rights. Um, There are significant issues involved with things like due process, freedom of expression that can't be overcome when that is the motivation for government hacking. Um, And so we actually recommend that those type of activities be banned outright, at least in a peacetime context. Um, You know, this report is not necessarily looking at times of war or government-v-government activity. But when governments are engaging with individuals, we think that that should be
1: outright banned. Now, when you say outright banned, banned at the national legal level, banned at the international law level? Because those are related, Mm -hmm. but very different things that you might be calling for there.
2: Sure. So we think it's inconsistent with international law. Um, and so we think that an international instrument, for example, that said that this activity is not consistent would be appropriate. Um, a lot of governments don't necessarily comply with those instruments. Um, no. and I know it's shocking. Um, and so it's actually better to have those national laws um, that prohibit this type of activity. Um, but it, either one, I think would be a huge step forward. Um, and then the third type of activity in really digging in on hacking for surveillance. Um, what we realized specifically from a human rights framework, and I think that there are a lot of harms associated with government hacking outside of human rights that still make this activity really suspect. Um, and we outright say that it should not be engaged in, but that with significant safeguards that are actually complied with, um, that you can see that those two things can exist, that human rights can consist can exist in a world um, where governments hack for that purpose. Um, Now, the safeguards that we think need to be in place for that are really significant um, to the point that I'm not sure that a government would
0: ever actually consider putting this in place. Well, so let's say a government decided that they absolutely needed to use some kind of, you know, hacking tools Mm -hmm. or surveillance. And what would be some of those ways where human rights could be protected
2: Sure. So one example is that we think that there would need to be what we call a competent judicial authority. And that doesn't just mean an independent judiciary, um, like what we know of in the U.S., but an independent judiciary who actually understands the issues. Um, And this is something that we're very familiar with in the U.S. because our judges don't often get technology. Um, They're being asked to approve tools and, and equipment that they don't understand what it does, let alone what it can do, the ways that Um, It can malfunction and act outside of the way it's planned to work. Um, So one of the recommendations we have is that you have to have a judge in place that is independent, but also either is educated on this or has somebody on staff that can provide them the information they need to understand the full ramifications of what they're being asked to.
1: How would you um, ensure that? Because, you know, to put it bluntly, someone may think that they're educated on it, Mm -hmm. but wouldn't be. Or you have the fact that, you know, of course, technology's fast moving. So someone may be adequately educated circa 2010, but then by the time we're talking cybersecurity issues of 2016, they're not going to be ready for it. What are the mechanisms for that?
2: Sure. So we've seen some of them being discussed recently in the U.S. Um, in regard to the, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. There is the issue that they weren't being aware of the issues that they were approving. And what they did is they allowed um, in the USA Freedom Act for the FISA court to appoint a advocate, a special advocate who could come in and it could be a legal advocate, so they could provide legal advice, but it wasn't restricted to that. It could also be an advocate on issues of technology who could come in and kind of provide that third party consultation on issues outside of their peer view. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that is a significant step. I also think that that third party, the, um, the person who is doing the educating, should be able to intervene on their own once they're appointed by the court. That the court should not only be able to ask for them to come in, but on reviewing the docket, um, they should be able to say, "I think I need to provide expertise on this mm-hmm. issue." Um, and so, it's not only a matter of the judge notice, noticing when they have when they don't have knowledge on a specific issue, but also when somebody else who has that expertise can say, "No, I, you're not going to understand the fullness of mm-hmm. this problem."
1: One of the other recommendations you have in the report is that. Government, and this is your phrasing, government hacking m- must always provide actual notice to the target of the operation and all parties impacted thereby. Doesn't that actually kind of defeat the purpose of some of these mm-hmm. forms of hacking, particularly on the surveillance side? If the target knows about it, then we may take away the value of the activity itself.
2: Well, and that's one of the reasons, like we, when we say significant safeguards, Um I, I'm not trying to be uh, euphemistic. We are putting in place really significant pieces of um, protections into this. Um, there are emergency exemptions. There are going to be cases when you can give notice. So if you, for example, think about when they were trying to hack into the iPhone in San Bernardino. In that specific instance, the the person who owned the iPhone was dead, so it wasn't an issue of notice um but if it they have a device that they're trying to hack into they should give notice to the person Um, who owns that
1: device. But I can imagine someone arguing back saying, look, you know, the case you you just chose was Mm -hmm. after the fact. Wouldn't we want to be able to do this before the attack? And if we give notice to them, hey, we're thinking Mm -hmm. about going into your iPhone, then either they they accelerate the attack or whatever. I mean, another way of phrasing this is, are your significant um, safeguards actually another way of just making sure it doesn't happen at all?
2: It could be seen as that. Like I said, there are exceptions to this. We think that, for example, in emergency circumstances, when they need to get in it and notice is impracticable, this is something that we see in U.S. law often, that they should be able to bypass that. But in U.S. law, you find that they bypass notice provisions often when they shouldn't be, um, and kind of in perpetuity. They never give notice. So one of the things we are pretty adamant about is that notice has to be given eventually. Um, And as soon as practicable After the activity has occurred, preferably before the activity has occurred, Um, but it can't go on that they hack into a device and then just never inform the person that they have done that. Um, And then we also, something that you mentioned, we also say that that notice should extend beyond the specific target because these tools have huge ramifications for people Mm -hmm. in communication with the target for people who, God forbid, also have that tool downloaded on their device because it hasn't been controlled adequately enough and that something needs to be in place to say your device has been compromised as well.
0: I do want to bring us back to the San Bernardino case, because that's something that we've talked a lot about on this podcast um, and how encryption plays into this. Because in that case, you see Apple and other companies that supported Apple saying that they would never under any circumstances build in a backdoor way for the governments to get into their products. So how does that, does that force the government to start thinking about ways to hack into devices more in the way that they did for the San Bernardino iPhone, where they had to find another solution to get into the phone? And what do you see the trend line um, as it, as encryption gets stronger? Do you see government hacking becoming more of an issue?
2: I'm not sure I see it com- becoming more of an issue, but I do see it becoming more necessary to debate it as an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think that a lot of governments right now are hacking in a lot of instances and not talking about it. Um, but they're also they're trying to have their cake and eat it too they're trying to say we want to undermine encryption because it's getting in the way of all of these surveillance capabilities um, that aren't able to overcome it but we also want to engage in the super invasive hacking um, and in the UK's instance what they call bulk hacking I'm not even totally sure what bulk hacking means but it terrifies me um, and so they want both of them and I think in our ideal world we would First of all, say you should not be interfering with encryption at all. We need to have as strong encryption as a company can develop and implement for its users. And that has to be priority number one. Um, and then like, and then as the report says, there might be instances when f- as strong of encryption being in place as possible, it's compatible with human rights for governments to engage in hacking operations that has to be with significant safeguards. And in our mind, in those instances, it's actually a lot more targeted than what governments are proposing, which is kind of undermining encryption across the board, which really impacts everybody on the internet. It's not one person anymore. It's mm-hmm. the entire user base. But I think
1: that's where the the debate's going to head to next. Um, I not merely should government hack or not, I think that this practice will continue. But the question of what is government's obligation once it finds a vulnerability. So it's it's not the sort of, we've had the debate over whether uh, FBI should have tried to get into the iPhone. Mm-hmm. It's the, once it finds out about the vulnerability, is it obligated to tell the company and the rest of us on one hand, which will protect us all in terms of greater cybersecurity. On the other hand, it takes away their ability to hack using that pathway in the future? Where do you come down on this?
2: Sure. So I think the government actually should always reveal a vulnerability to a company um, impacted by, it, or to at least the person who can patch that vulnerability. Um, does that say that they should never be able to use that vulnerability while it's being patched? I think that goes back to the question of, should they be able to hack to begin with? Um, but- when it comes to preserving surveillance techniques or making users of a product vulnerable, I think you should always come down on protecting the user. Um, unfortunately, you know, the U.S. has a policy in place that was, quote unquote, reinvigorated um, a couple years ago. And they're not even following their own policy. The FBI seems to have found this strange loophole around the policy where they're supposed to put every single vulnerability they discover through this process, this vulnerabilities equities process, to determine if it should be revealed. Um, But because they never had possession of and they purchased the vulnerability in the San Bernardino case from a third party, and it just was never really at the FBI um, they think that they don't have to put it through the process and it's this weird loophole and they're not being transparent at all um with how they were able to get around the process why they didn't disclose it what vulnerabilities they choose to not disclose and what purposes something could not be disclosed for um, this is an ongoing fight for example that Mozilla is having they believe that the FBI knows of a v- probably fairly significant vulnerability in their software that they're not turning over. Um, and they recently filed a motion that was denied to try to get the
0: FBI to, to turn that vulnerability over and they wouldn't do it. So I guess just to recap for the listeners, so in the, San Bernardino, in the San Bernardino case, as an example, you think from a human rights perspective that the targeted government hacking in that case was a better option than some sort of Rewrite of the code to create access for government, but they should have been more transparent about it. Is that what I'm getting from you, or, or do you think that there are, um, you know, going to be other issues with this process that Trump that, um, with the disclosure process that Trump the government hacking?
2: Sure. So I think in the San Bernardino case, it unequivocally was more targeted to get into this specific phone than to write software um, that would have, if it got out, allowed access to every single iPhone with that mm-hmm. operating system. So I think that is one consideration. There are significant other considerations. Um, and like I said, our, our paper only looks at specifically if this is compatible with human rights, but I think you also have to look at um, harms to digital security, um, harms to the economy. There are different things that come up when you talk about hacking. So every case is going to be fairly fact-specific. Mm. Um, we're just trying to clear that first hurdle of are you complying with international law in any specific issue?
1: So when it comes to the overall recommendations in the report, to see this implemented, how much of it depends on new law and how much of it just depends on interpretation of existing law in new ways, that is changing practices?
2: I would actually say that a lot of it would depend on new law. Um, We are in the U.S., Trying to wedge a lot of issues into very old law, and it's coming up with I think bad law. Um, so, for example, the FBI often will go get a warrant for its hacking operations, um, but only a regular warrant. Whereas for we call them super warrants, what they have to go through for interception, um, we would I would say that you have to get super super warrants to do <laughs> hacking because it's even more um, it's even more invasive than. Um, recording phone conversations as they're happening. And so making sure that these legal um, position, legal standards are in place explicitly, I think are going to require that new laws are written. Um, Otherwise you're going to see um, out of date incompatible standards trying to be applied um, in a system where they just don't work.
0: Well, I just wanted to ask you our famous or I wanted to ask you with a question that we ask all of our guests on the podcast, and that is what is your favorite depiction of cybersecurity in fiction? Favorite as in you love it, or favorite as in you love to hate it because it's just so ridiculous?
2: <laughs> um, probably hackers because it's so ridiculous. I kind of love the the city navigating the big cities and the, the code and the buildings that they have to go through. Um, Yeah, that will
0: always be a classic favorite of mine, I think. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks again to Amy for a great conversation.
1: And join us next month when we interview more of cybersecurity's biggest leaders and thinkers. Be sure to subscribe to us at New America's iTunes and SoundCloud at the Cybersecurity Podcast. And I'm on Twitter at Peter W. Singer.
0: And you can follow me at Sarah Sorcher. Sign up for Passcode at csmpasscode.com. This podcast was directed by John Williams and Amanda Gaines with production assistance from Simone McPhail. Talk to you in a month. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America and the Christian Science Monitor. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Music thanks to MK2 for their songs, The Big Score and Cold Killer. To learn more about Passcode by the Christian Science Monitor, please visit passcode.csmonitor.com. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.